Good morning. Glad to see a record crowd here today. This is more than, honestly, I was expecting or hoping for. So glad to see all of you here today and hope you're staying, staying healthy, staying well. We're feeling preacher today. I'm going to do my best. I want to begin this morning in a, in a bit of a not normal way. And that is by doing one of my favorite things, singing a VBS song. Now, we probably all have our favorite VBS songs. Probably all have our least favorite VBS songs. I can, I can name a few on, on both sides of that. But one of my favorite VBS songs, and I, I don't even know the title of it, but I think we sang it this past year here at Mabelvale, the VBS. And it has the line, My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. So, if you will, ask you a favor. If you will, sing that song with me, hand motions and all. It's okay. <laughs> um, so, to begin this morning. All right. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. The mountains are His, the valleys are His, the sky is His handiwork too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. All right, there was a, there was a distinct dif- difference in the joy I saw on the faces of those who did the motions and those who didn't. So that's all I'm saying. There's, there was a big difference there. There's nothing my God cannot do. Matthew 19, 26, Paul read for us, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. God can do anything, right? There's nothing my God cannot do. With God, all things are possible. But this morning, we are going to talk about some things that God cannot do. And it's not just things that no one can do. Because there are some things that that no one can do. That neither we nor God can do. No one can make a four-sided triangle. If something is not three-sided, it cannot be a triangle, right? And no one can make a solid white ball that also has black spots on it. Because it's no longer a solid white ball if it has black spots on it. So so no one can do either of those things because they're they're logically impossible. But those aren't the kind of things that we're going to talk about this morning. It's not things that are logically impossible that no one can do. These are things that God cannot do. But you and I, we can. And we do. Open with me to 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, about midway through the the New Testament books. Like I said, it's not just that God can't do them and we can't. It's that we can do them and God can't. And it's not just that he won't do them. It's that he can't do them. Because these things are contrary to his nature. So in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through through 13, we have this passage that, that helps us to begin to wrap our minds around this concept. Paul says, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, 
he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I can't breathe underwater like a fish. You can't flap your arms right now and and fly off into the sky like a bird, because that's not what we are, right? It's not in our nature. God cannot deny himself. He cannot go against his own nature. So, So these things are not it's not just that God can't do them because they're, they're logically impossible. It's that he can't do them because they're against who he is. You and I, though, we've got this. Number one, we can lie. We can lie. And we do sometimes. Probably, hopefully, not that often, but sometimes we do. Watch this. I, I just love the Arkansas Razorbacks and all of their fans. See, see, we can lie, and, and sometimes we do blatantly lie. I read about a man named, named Bob, Her- Bob Harris. Mr. Harris was, was this, this hotshot weatherman in the 1970s. He was, he was on one of the big New York City uh, news stations, and he, he was also on national programs. He, he was hired by the New York Times and MLB and Long Island Railroad. He was, he was a big deal. He was widely known as Dr. Bob. But that started... In a weird way. It started by him calling the New York City weather station where he he got his start and introducing himself as a PhD in geophysics from Columbia University. The problem with that is that even though he had gone to three different colleges and studied math, geology, and physics, he had never graduated from any of those schools. He, He didn't leave school with a degree. He just really wanted to be a weatherman. But, but that phony degree got him in the door of that weather station. And after a two-month tryout, they hired him full-time. Now, from there, the next decade, his career just, just flourished. He became uh, nationally known for his talent. So at this point, a decade in, he's about 40 years old, and he's, he's living his childhood dream. But then it all fell apart. He was humiliated because... An anonymous tip, a letter sent to his weather station, caused an investigation into his academic credentials, and that did not end well for him. They found, you know, the truth, that he hadn't gone to school, he hadn't graduated from school, there was no Ph.D. in geophysics from Columbia, so he was fired. And then also, the New York Times fired him, and he went on all the... the talk shows and, and news stations, all the big ones where they, they talk about the, the bad stuff that's going on in the world. He was a disgrace. He was, he was shamed. He was convinced he was going to lose his house and never work in media again. But several days went by, and the MLB announced that they were not firing him, and, and neither was the Long Island Railroad. And then another news station hired him. So he's, he's getting back on his feet. But even with all of that, he's convinced that that lie was the worst thing that he ever did for himself. Because even though it turned out better for him than he could ever have hoped for, he was was famous nationally, he he didn't lose all of his his jobs, in fact, he got them back just in different ways. But even with all of that, even though it turned out better than he could ever have hoped, he was convinced that it was the worst thing that he ever did. He was convinced that it contributed to his divorce. He later said this, he said, I took a shortcut that turned out to be the long way around. And one day, the bill came due. I will be sorry as long as I am alive. That big lie turned out better for him than he could ever have hoped, but he still regretted it. I've had similar experiences with lies. You you probably have too. 
That moment when, when you're caught in a lie is not a fun one. Studies tell us that six out of every ten adults can't go a ten-minute conversation without telling at least one lie. In those studies, they, they found that on average, three lies were told in ten minutes. Six out of every ten adults. We've probably all experienced that to one degree or another, maybe played, played our part in improving those statistics. We lie. First John 1 and verse 5, John writes that this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So we can lie. That's what we find in verse 6. But in verse 5, it tells us that there is no darkness in God. There is no, no moral impurity in him. Therefore, he cannot lie. Hebrews 6 and verse 18, it is impossible for God to lie. This is just a laundry list of verses saying basically the same thing. Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? First Samuel fifteen twenty nine, and also the glory of Israel, referring to God, will not lie or have regret for he is not a man that he should have regret. Titus 1 verse 2, God who never lies. And the, the capstone of them all, Romans 3 and verse 4, let God be true, though everyone were a liar. God cannot lie. Now, it's, it's been estimated that there are over 30,000 promises found in the pages of Scripture. Everett Storms was a school teacher in Canada, and he had heard that, that 30,000 number, and he was, a little, he was a little suspicious of it, because th- there are only about 31,000 verses in the entire Bible. So, according to that number, there's an average of, almost an average of a promise in each verse of the Bible. So, he didn't buy that. So, he took it upon himself to read the Bible through. It was his 27th time reading the Bible through. But this time, he had a specific purpose in mind to count each promise, each distinct promise on the pages of the Bible. Now, after a year and a half, when he got through the end of that mission, he had counted 8,810 promises. Grand total, not quite 30,000, but still a whole lot of promises in Scripture. Now, of those 8,810, 7,487 promises were from God to humankind. So, some promise from God to a human or to all of humanity. And of those 7,487 promises from God to humanity, God either has already kept or will keep every single one of them. He will not break a single promise. John 10 and verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. So with that in mind, I want to remind us all of just a few promises that we have in the pages of scripture and let the comfort that we can find from the fact that God cannot, will not, won't lie to us, wash over us. Psalm 25 and verse 7, I I felt like this, I feel like it more often than, than I like to admit. Maybe you have too. The psalmist says, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. The psalmist didn't want God to remember him because of the bad things he'd done. He wanted him to remember him through the goodness of God, to look at him through that perspective, through that lens, instead of through his actions. For the psalmist and for us, there's good news, because God promised to forget our sins. Now, like we've been doing, I'm going to go through these verses Probably too quickly for you to turn to them. But I just want you to listen to these words and, and let them wash over your mind. Because sometimes it's, it's a whole lot harder for us to forgive ourselves than it is for God to forgive us. 
Isaiah 43 and verse 25, God speaking, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. I wipe them out in our terminology for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Jeremiah 31, 34, he's, he's, this is a prophecy speaking of the new covenant, the covenant that we are under today, speaking to those under the old covenant. He says, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Hebrews 8 and verse 12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 10 and verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Now, if you're in Christ, if you're covered by his blood, these verses are about you. They're about your sin. Romans 4, verses 7 and 8. In light of that, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. We're blessed. We're blessed because he never fails to keep a promise. Isaiah 38, verse 17. In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. We're clean. We're purified. We're saved. He will remember our sins no more. Another promise. He promised never to leave us alone. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. So that we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear because what can man do to me? God promised that he'll never leave us. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can say, Psalm 27 and verse 10, For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. What a verse. For my father and mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Even if everybody on earth leaves us, even if our friends, our family, even if our spiritual family were to desert us, if all of that, God will take us in. We have a home. He promised never to leave us. Last promise we'll talk about. He promised to supply our needs. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read a, a lengthy passage together. It's one that you probably have read before. Parts of it you, you make and quote. But it's one that I think it's important for us to read on a regular basis. Matthew 6 We'll read beginning in verse 25. While you're turning there, I want to read to you Philippians chapter 4 and verse 19. Paul says that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply every need of yours. A similar text is Matthew 6, beginning in verse 25. This is Jesus speaking. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things, everything that everybody worries about in our world, all these things 
will be added to you. God will supply every need. As I was thinking about this this week, I found, found this poem, and I'm, I'm not that much of a, a poem guy, but I thought this poem was, was pretty clever. I want to read it to you. It's entitled, If God Should Go on Strike. How good it is that God above has never gone on strike, because he was not treated fair in things he didn't like. If only once he'd given up and said, that's it, I'm through. I've had enough of those on earth, so this is what I'll do. I'll give my orders to the sun, cut off the heat supply, and to the moon, give no more light, and run the oceans dry. Then to make things really tough and put the pressure on, turn off the vital oxygen until every breath is gone. You know he would be justified if fairness was the game, for no one has ever been more abused or met with more disdain than God, and yet he carries on, supplying you and me with all the favors of his grace and everything for free. Men say they want a better deal, and so on strike they go. But what a deal we've given God, to whom all things we owe. We don't care whom we hurt to gain the things we like, but what a mess we'd all be in if God should go on strike. This is written by Walt Huntley. If God went on strike, we'd all be in summation of that. If God went on strike, we'd all be in big trouble. But because he never breaks his promises, because we have the promises of Philippians 4.19 and, and Matthew 6 and, and other texts, we know that as we're following him, if we're seeking him first, then all of those things will be added to us. Every need is supplied. Now, because of all of that, we can say with the writer of 1 Kings 8 and verse 56, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Not one word has failed. Now they could say that, and we can say that today, because we serve the same exact God, the God who cannot lie. Number two, things that we can do that God cannot. We can tempt. We can tempt each other. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the the Corinthian church is is in a pickle. (laughs) They're, They're not in a great spot. They're fellowshipping a man who's, who's doing something that's so horrendous. Paul says that even the, the people of their, their tremendously secular world wouldn't even dare to speak of it. He was sleeping with his father's wife. Now, Paul is, is exhorting the Corinthian church because he says you're not handling this correctly. The Corinthian church was embracing him, accepting him in, and, and not condemning him or judging him for, for his sin. And Paul says, no. That's not how you're supposed to deal with this. They were even taking pride in the fact that they weren't pushing him off or cutting him off from, from them. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 6, he says, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, he's, he's trying to get them to disfellowship the man, to push him off from their fellowship in an effort to win him back. And in 2 Corinthians, it seems that it worked. It seems that he, he left his sin and came back to, to the church. But what I want us to take from that is, is verse 6. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In, in other words, if you accept this, this, little, bit, this, this little bit of sin in, in contrast to the whole congregation, it's just, just one guy, right? Just, just one sin, just one guy living his life in sin. But if you, if you accept that, it spreads. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. We can tempt each other. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. We can tempt each other. We might, we might tell a dirty joke and cause one of our co-workers to think evil things. We might dress in, in a way that causes people around us to have lustful thoughts. We may pressure someone to lie for us. 
And none of those, those cases make, make us wholly responsible for someone else's sin. We, we still have to answer for ourselves to God, right? But in all of those cases, we did play a part. We played a role in, in causing temptation for someone else. So we can tempt each other. But God? Not the case. James 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and neither does he tempt anyone. God cannot tempt anyone. Now, God does test us. Hebrews 12 and verse 6. He chastises everyone he receives, and he disciplines every son whom he loves. So God does test us. But there's a big old difference between being tested and being tempted. In fact, there's as much difference between those two things as a teacher encouraging a student to quit school and that same teacher encouraging that same student to take a test that examines where he's at in school and inspires him, hopefully, to become a better student. There's a big difference between those two things. And in the same way, there's a big difference between God testing us and God tempting us. God will never tempt us because God is always on our side. He's always on your side. He's always on mine. He wants what's best for us. That's, that's who he is. He is self-sacrificial love. 1 John 4 and verse 8. God is agape love. He is self-sacrificial love. At, at the rock bottom root of who God is, it's that self-sacrificial love. He wants what's best for everybody. And that's why we read in 1 Timothy 2 and verse 4 that God wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants what's best for everyone on earth. So, he won't tempt us. We can tempt people, but God won't. He can't. It's not in his nature. And that's why we have another promise that, that we didn't talk about under, under the last point. The promise of 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13, where Paul says that no temptation has overtaken us except what is common to man. God is faithful and he will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will, with the temptation, make the way of escape that we may be able to bear it. So not only will God not tempt us, even when we are tempted by our own lust through the work of Satan, even when we're tempted, he will provide the way of escape so that no matter what we're tempted with, we can endure it. We can win. So God cannot lie. God cannot tempt. And number three, God cannot change. We can change, and, and sometimes we need to change. You know, I, I wish everyone on earth would be more open to change. I think the world would be a better place if, if we were all more empathetic, more humble, more loving. Those are all characteristics that, that contribute to a willingness to change. If I'm empathetic, if I'm saying I can, I'm trying to understand where you're coming from, then I'm going to be more willing to change, to see things from your perspective. If I'm humble, if I say, you know, I, I don't, I'm not perfect, I don't have everything figured out, then I'm going to be more willing to change. If I'm loving, truly self-sacrificially loving, then I'm going to be more willing to change, to meet other people's needs, to meet them where they're at, like we talked about in the Bible class. So, so sometimes we need to change. We need to change our minds, our thoughts, our opinions, our views, our direction, our tone. You name it, sometimes we need to change it. But not God. Malachi 3 and verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, God, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. And this is something for which I'm, I'm so thankful. And I want to show you why. Open to the Psalm 136. This is, this is where we'll end. Psalm 136. We're going to read the whole thing, and it's, it's not a super short psalm. 
And that's why I want you to turn to it with me so you can, you can see it. But it's, it's so, so powerful. God cannot change. As you're turning there, I want, I want to reference again where we began in, in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God cannot change. He can't deny himself. He can't deny his own all-loving, perfect nature. Psalm 136, we see one of the ramifications of that. We see one of his, his attributes praised over and over and over again because it cannot change. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, pause here. We're reading the same thing over and over and over again, right? It it can be tempting to check out, to let it not wash over you, not let it not affect you. Try to avoid that. What, what, What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that the steadfast love of God for you, for me, endures forever. There's no end to it. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever, and rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. God won't change the truth, even if it's unpopular. God won't take back his mercy for you, even if it's undeserved. And God won't stop loving you, even if you're unlovable. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, you can always come back to God. If you need to do that publicly this morning, won't you do it as we stand and as we sing?